Welcome to Better by Great Place to Work, the global authority on workplace culture. I'm your host, Rula Amiri, Content Director at Great Place to Work. On this episode, we speak with Irma Ogwin Jr., CEO and co-founder at Bitwise Industries. Irma Ogwin Jr., welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You are the CEO and co-founder of Bitwise. Correct me if I'm wrong, you went to high school in California. I did. But you went to college at the University of Toledo, which is in my home state of Ohio. I'm from Bowling Green. You're from Bowling Green. I'm from Bowling Green. We're rivals. We are. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how this will begin. (laughs) I was just thinking that. Well, this is interesting. Were those a few good years in in the Midwest and you've gone back to California? So what, I'm just curious, what, why Ohio, why UT? And do you have good memories? (laughs) I mean, well, so first of all, it was, it was a beautiful experience for me. It was extremely hard, uh, but transformative for me as a person. The Midwest is absolutely different in every way uh, from my hometown, which is in Fresno, California. Mm -hmm. But going to college and then ending up in Ohio, Neither of those were part of like a grand plan. It just sort of accidentally happened. Mm -hmm. And um, but it was a really fortunate accident that sort of led me to this place where I got to experience a whole side of the world where, you know, there aren't taco trucks around every corner, where you don't hear that much Spanish spoken, where the diversity is super different, where the weather is super different. Mm -hmm. Um, So culturally, it was just all the way 180 degrees. Are you still in touch with any of your college pals? You know, I wasn't super good at being in touch with them even when I was there. Okay. <laughs> so why would you after? Right. I mean, I know a few of them, and they're wonderful people. I just, um, yeah, I think my my life really did pick up and move back to the West Coast when it was time to do that. Got it. Um, so you founded Bitwise about nine years ago. And as a CEO, I'm sure you're familiar with the chatter around quiet quitting. Yeah. Um, you know, the term sparked by the viral TikTok video. Some people define quiet quitting as not going above and beyond at work and just doing the minimum. Others say workers are keeping a healthy work-life balance um, so they don't burn out. Mm. Bosses play a major role in the conversation about quiet quitting. They inspire us, they motivate us, and they help connect what we do with the company's mission and purpose. But if a boss has an unconscious bias or a stereotype based on gender or race, no matter how hard their employees work, they feel it won't matter, so why bother? Mm -hmm. How can we help managers make the connection between an unequitable workforce and productivity? I think the term is somewhat loaded to begin with, right? Okay. Quiet quitting sort of indicates that the person doesn't want to be there, right? That it's sort of starting from the place that this person who's employed by another person doesn't want to be there. And I don't think that's the case all the time. I do think that there needs to be balance. I think as bosses, as CEOs, as entrepreneurs, as builders, we do need to be more aware of the role that work itself plays in a person's life. And I think that's evolving. I think, you know, generationally speaking, the generation behind us was very much you find a job that pays you as much as you can find and stay there forever until you can retire. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we live in that world anymore, especially with the technology industry and a number of other factors at play. But work is now an element of your life, but not necessarily your whole life. And I think as bosses, we need to recognize and respect that. Not Mm -hmm. to mention that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or CEO, there's no way 
the rest of the roster of the company is going to care about what you're doing as much as, much as you, you care right. about what you're doing. So we should just know that. Eyes wide open, accommodate, I think, for that in many cases. Now, I'm not saying set up systems that should be abused and let people, mm-hmm. you know, do nothing. That's not what I'm promoting here. But I think there does need to be more respect from the, you know, quote unquote, top down that work is not our entire lives anymore. How do you model that? So you talked about, you know, work is not life. How do you model a good work life balance because leader that's who we're looking toward toward as as examples i think one of the things that's really easy so we do really missional work which we can talk about mm-hmm. but it's really about serving other people and so it's really easy to get lost in i'm too busy saving the world to live in it and as a leader as a ceo i need to know myself i need to know what i love that's outside of work and that's an effort. It actually is an effort when you also love what you do, which I do. And so for the folks at our workplace, at least, we promote knowing what you love outside of work and spending time with those things. Could be family, could be camping, could be your dog, right? Doesn't, I don't need to determine that for you. And it doesn't have to be anything that someone else would expect, but there does need to be things outside of work that you care about. And I think especially when you're doing missional work, it's easy to lose sight of that. So let's talk about that. I know supporting underserved communities is a core value at Bitwise, and you've helped thousands of students build careers in technology. What are some of the obstacles in the traditional hiring process that encourages job seekers to not even take a shot at the job to get into this kind of work? Yeah, we've definitely built systems over years, decades, if not hundreds of years, where we expect workers to look a certain way and to come from very specific backgrounds going so far as to discount a person's lived experience if it's not the right experience. Um, And we think that's a mistake. We think that there are plenty of people who have something to offer the world that don't look or sound anything like what they might look or sound like in a big tech company in a primary market. And I would go even one step further and say that if we are really serious that there's a talent war in the technology industry, which is our business, but if we're really serious about there being a talent war, then we're going to need to look in new places to find that talent. And so that's what we have been doing for the better part of a decade now is turning over all of those rocks and looking in underestimated communities at underestimated people and saying, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. They can belong in this industry as much as anyone else Mm -hmm. if just given the chance and a little bit of belief in them. Why is that more than... A nice idea. I mean, how does it affect the business, the bottom line? What have you seen in terms of retention, productivity? What can that do for a company? Extraordinary results. Extraordinary results. Our retention is up above 90%. And for a decade-old company, venture-backed, growth-stage company, that's pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Um, These folks really want to make it happen, and they want to serve your purpose, right? The mission of the company, which means that they're going to find their success stories and then they're going to turn right back around and say, how can we bring up the next generation of success stories that come from communities like mine? Mm -hmm. And that is infinitely scalable. When you start to do the math for every person who finds their success story, two plus additional people from that same community are going to find a similar success story. Now we're talking about a business imperative where we don't have a talent problem. We have an unlimited talent pipeline that the rest of the world has been asking the technology industry to find, and we have found it. It just, once again, doesn't look or come from the places you're expecting it to look or come from. What 
are some suggestions you have for other leaders if they're listening to this and that and it sounds good and they would like to make some inroads in terms of DEIB where should or can an average company begin I mean how do they start to look in untraditional places for underrepresented employees or future employees definitely I think if we're not if we're not going so far as to build your own talent pipeline, which is what Bitwise has done, mm-hmm. and you're instead sort of picking up talent where you can find it, then it starts with your hiring practices. It absolutely does. If you're screening out for keywords, you're already missing out on a bunch of candidates that you might otherwise be interested in. If you're screening out for a very specific degree from a very specific school, you're going to miss out. Um, these are folks who could contribute to the work that you're doing. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some jobs where you've got to have, you know, your CFO is going to have to know how to CFO, uh, right? So that makes sense. But when you're hiring, the question that you're asking is not, does this person come with the right number of years of experience? The question that you're really asking is, do I like this person so much that when they mess up, and they will, I want to stand in front of them and make sure that we're together making improvements. That's what you're really trying to find out when you're interviewing somebody is, do I want to hang out with this person and stand up for them when it doesn't go well? The first point you mentioned about keywords and screening for certain types of keywords and job applications, college degrees, um, what are some other keywords that companies maybe shouldn't screen for depending on, of course, the job role? Yeah, I mean, it's it's super discriminatory, but I, I know that some practices exist where immigrants are screened out, um, where folks who maybe don't have a certain GPA are screened out. Um, these are ways, for our practice, and what we deeply believe in, is that it's really the first conversation that tells you more about the person than that piece of paper is ever going to tell you, right? So you want to have more first conversations than pieces of paper. You can back up that conversation now with a resume or with a CV or LinkedIn portfolio or a GitHub account. But that first conversation is where you have to spend your time because you have to know, is this person going to be right for my company, work in service of the ultimate mission, and am I going to want to stand up for them when things go the wrong way? Mm -hmm. Right? Those are the things that you're listening for in that first conversation. If you don't get past that, the piece of paper is not ever going to matter. It's not going to matter what the GPA was when they went to Harvard. Uh, And it's not going to matter whether they have a specific language under their belt that may or may not actually be part of the job description. Um, But we see that happening all the time where we're screening people out instead of having that first conversation to find out if you want to spend time with this person. So how much does the application or the piece of paper matter? What, What should employers look for if these are things they shouldn't look for, shouldn't screen for. What are they looking for before they even meet with someone to bring someone in for the first interview? For us, the best source of candidates is our referrals, and not always from people who work for, for us, but from folks who interact with our company. Um, once you sort of understand Bitwise, then you kind of understand the people that work there as well. And so we get a lot of folks who come through the front door saying, so-and-so sent me, (laughs) and can I get a first conversation, Um, which works really, really well for us. I'm not claiming that that's going to work well for everyone, especially if maybe your brand or your company doesn't stand so much on its mission the way that ours does. Totally get that. But that does work for us. So when we're looking for folks and we're not trying to screen out, what we are doing is is the location, have they shown up in the community in the way that we would like them to show up in the community? Maybe they're involved in something else that we're interested in. 
do they have friends inside of the, the things that we work with, right? So community groups, we work a lot with the formerly incarcerated, the veteran reentry population. We work a lot with the LGBTQ community. So when we are looking at candidates, do they interact with those communities or are they, they going to be put off by that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the sorts of things that we're kind of looking for. And then next to that, of course, the next piece of the conversation is kind of that, on that skill level. What can you bring to the table and what does the business need that we can utilize of that person. So for you, for Bitwise, one of the first filters when I'm hearing is purpose, community involvement, values, and making sure those are tied to what you do as a company. And then the skill set. That's right. Absolutely in that order. Skill sets very often, I mean, we say it all the time, but do we really mean it? Skill sets can be taught. But it's going to be really hard to turn a person you don't like into a person you like. <laughs> it's just unlikely to happen. So we look for that first. Which bleeds into life. That's not 100%, just yeah. <laughs> true for the working world. That's right. That's right. Switching gears a bit, uh, a few questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit more. Um, what is the best piece of a career advice you'd go back and give your younger self? That piece of advice. Or are you advice, still telling yourself? Still, yourself? I still use I, it to this day. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and the piece of advice actually is not something I would tell myself. I would just listen to my mom. <laughs> I would actually take her advice when she first gave it to me instead of waiting 10 years for that to make sense. Uh, but she'll say, don't take a no from someone who can't give you a yes in the first place which is not meant to be combative, but it's meant to say, if you're getting a no, which has an emotional hit, right? Every time somebody tells you no, you take that, right? That is a punch to the body. Yeah, exactly. But if they're not actually in a position to give you a yes, then that's not meaningful. Go find the decision maker. Go find the person who can sort of keep you from the thing that you need to do or that you want to do and let them tell you no. Um, Taking no's from everyone else is only an emotional drag, uh, but not a real one. What context did she tell you that? Gosh, in so many different places, but I think the place, so absolutely in like customer service, right? If you, I worked customer service and anybody, anybody who's okay. ever worked customer service for yeah. a long time knows there, there's a lot you can do. And then there are things that you're not inclined to do at all, just based on the interaction. And uh, so in, in that context, it absolutely makes sense. But the one that rings in my ears, mm-hmm. especially in this phase of what we're doing at Bitwise is when we first set out to raise money in 2018, 2019, we raised our Series A. We got so many no's. So to be fair, we also didn't know at all what we were doing, but we got so many no's and it was so draining and so painful. And then we realized we were not asking any of the right questions to figure out if those no's mattered at all. Were you not answering, asking the right question or were you not asking the right people? We were not asking the right questions of the right people. So even more, right? Even double whammy here for sure. But like, so in venture, when you're raising money, there are firms who write a very specific size of check and a very specific investment thesis and a very specific stage of company. And we weren't finding out if these firms wrote checks for our stage of company in this thesis before we went to the ninth conversation. And so we were getting these long drawn out no's Instead of finding out in the first conversation, we weren't going to be a fit for them to begin with. And it was so emotionally draining. We learned really fast, of course, not to do that anymore. But that first stretch of time when we were super bad at this, that was tough. It was really tough. That sounds and then discouraging. You realize, yeah. You realize, like, you know what? You were never going to say yes. 
under no circumstances were you ever going to say yes. Why did we do this to ourselves? Then you switch gears. Switch gears, yeah, absolutely. Right questions to the right people. That's right. And things then took a turn. That's right. And then, and then when you do get a no, it's from the right person ha- after having been asked the right questions. Mm-hmm. And nobody's feelings are hurt. It's just mm-hmm. like, this isn't going to work. Let's move on. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we have the energy to do that now because we're not taking all of these body shots, right? Right. Um, and the no feels, well, how does the no feel different then from the, from the right people? You know, it's there's like a, a lack of embarrassment or a lack of shame that you learn to develop, especially in raising money, where mm-hmm. a no isn't a reflection on you or your character or any of the qualities that you identify yourself with. Um, and instead, it's really about not checking all of the correct boxes for this spreadsheet that's going to need to get filled out someday. So that lack of shame, that's another source of, you know, where the drain goes away. And you can use that energy for something else that's more productive. And that translates into other aspects of work. If you're not trying to get money talking with venture capitalists, it's right. still reevaluate what you're asking and who you're asking, and then you'll have you'll feel different. Hundred percent. Is there a favorite book or podcast you've discovered uh, recently, and why your peers should check it out? Wow. I mean, I think it changes all the time. So I'm not really a podcast listener for like an everyday thing. It's always like a really high note. And then I'll go listen to that. And it's like, wow, that blew my mind, Mm -hmm. which is neat. And I think that it matters to where you're at as a person, what's going to hit you. Right. So I read um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, by um, uh, Ben Horowitz. And this was about five years ago or so where the company this was before we raised money and we were just battling and it was like wow this guy is living out the nightmare I'm living out <laughs> or has lived in it and it felt really good to see it articulated in that way that was transformative did someone recommend that book to you or were you seeking out what am I doing here yeah no I think I saw it on some tweet just random somebody else in the tech industry who's like this changed my life and I'm like i I could use my life change. <laughs> I could see. I could see, get in use line. a bit of that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it and it did. It what you know what was helpful about it is that it was brutal, and I think that's what I needed was not to shy away from how excruciating everything felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I needed instead was for somebody to say, you know what, it's real fucking hard, and and it won't get better until it gets better. Um, and then I could stop validating almost. That. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, um, the painfulness of it now felt like part of the process instead of the end of the process. Uh, and so that was really useful to me in that moment and has been useful to me ever since. And then, you know, I mean, who can, who can really ever be a whole person without listening to Brene Brown a little bit, you know, at least a little bit. Um, and that was really useful. Who is the most important person you talk to every day? personally, professionally, or both? Yeah, my, I have a co-CEO, Jake Soberall, and um, what we've learned over time, so it would be really easy to sit here and say, like, if we don't talk every day, we get out of sync, like, and that's the problem. That's not the problem. If we don't talk every day, we start to feel like we're not in this together, and that is actually way more damaging than whether somebody made a decision that we wouldn't have otherwise agreed with, right? And so... Being emotionally connected as co-CEOs has been really necessary for our business. And I'm really grateful that he recognizes that, right? So I think he was actually the first to say, like, you know, it just doesn't feel like we're, like you're in my boat anymore. And it's like, oh, well, 
I'm totally in your boat. <laughs> like, there's no other boat. There's I no other in. boat, bro. <laughs> like, that's, yeah, exactly. So um, I, that that realization, which I think we both sort of came upon that when things were really hard several years ago, um, really did change how we look at the relationship and how much you have to decide every single day to choose that person. Every day you wake up and you choose that person again. It's almost it really is almost like a marriage. You took the words out of his mouth. You <laughs> yeah. could be talking about your partner. Right. Yeah. And, and in many ways, I mean, he has a, a wife and she's wonderful. Um, but in many ways, the relationship does have to exist at that level, that you're not going to bail on this person, even if you're mad. And it's not so much what you're checking in about. It's that you're checking in. That's right. That's right. What is one way you create a sense of well-being for yourself? Walks, meditation, yeah. decompressing somehow. No, meditation has been transformative for me. Um, and I say that knowing that it won't necessarily work for everyone all the time. But for me, the gift of meditation is knowing when something has changed inside of me, um, being aware of that change. So I think I used to walk around in life powering through all the time and, and still in many ways do. But now I know that that's what's happening and that matters. Uh, then I can check myself differently when, you know, I'm taking feedback or some, somebody's got a hard thing to say to me. I can hear that instead of taking it, you know, on the chin the way that I might have before. So just knowing myself that way, meditation has been essential for that. And I'm committed to that practice. When did you start meditating? Right around the start of Bitwise. Well, a couple of years before Bitwise, actually. So just over a decade ago. Um, I used to believe that meditation was about trying to empty your mind and sit still. And then I realized it was actually not those things at all, but more about like just being with yourself uh, mm -hmm. and not fighting being with yourself. And, and observing your thoughts that are coming in. I'm, I'm so curious about what I'm thinking about. Yes. Yeah. And what do I do? I care about that. <laughs> because yeah, why am get, I thinking about you that? You start to play a tape that is like all of these predefined motions, and then you really observe it for the first time, and you're like, you know what? I actually don't care about that at all, exactly. it turns out. And I don't want that to be my storyline. Right. Why am I doing that? 100%. Yeah. yeah. So it's been well, well over a decade now, transformative for me, but it does not need to be this practice where I have to clear out three hours of the day to meditate. Three minutes here and there does it for me. That was going to be my question. You know, for I've also picked up meditation, but mm. um, during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I think before I thought I don't have time. Yeah. I understood it's a good practice and something that I should probably do, but, you know, there's no time. You're a CEO uh, very busy, mm. um, and you make the time every day. Do you meditate daily, weekly? Several times a day. Several times a day. Yeah. So do you just catch a few moments Definitely. when you can, and that makes a difference? Yeah, so for me, it's length of time is really not the important piece. It's settling into myself for at least a moment is the important piece. And sometimes I feel like I need to do that a couple of times a day. Sometimes once a day is enough, but it definitely is daily. Part of that, though, is it's, it's like going to the gym, right? If you skip a day, you're going to feel it the next day. And that is true for me, too. What's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in your work career? We've touched on some challenges today. Yeah. Other than founding Bitwise, <laughs> <laughs> you did things before. You were in the working world uh, before, I'm sure you had challenges, perhaps something drove you to want to start your own company. Mm. I think the, the biggest professional challenge that I face is just my own 
I mean, everything is a double-edged sword. So I'm going to say this potentially as a negative, but there's also a positive to this. But my own background battles me all the time, right? Coming from, uh, you know, I'm the daughter of field laborers. My family is a Mexican immigrant family. We traveled to the Central Valley to um, follow the crops and the work, came up poor, didn't expect to go to college, ended up traveling across the country to go to college, became a computer engineer, you know, figured out how to make money, started a company, raised a bunch of cash. Like, all of those things are not the story that I told myself when I was young about what life would ultimately look like. And to this day, I still battle the distance between them. Um, what does it mean to be that six-year-old kid now running this level of company, having a podcast at a conference, and, like, what what the hell Taking is my life? Stages, right. giving advice. So I battle that a lot, and I feel like... It's really important for me to say that out loud and put that in front of people because I don't think we talk about it enough. There are lots of folks, you know, I'm a queer Latina CEO and that I'm having some issues with some of those things and putting them out into the world. There are other people who are going to feel that way. And I think we don't talk about that enough. Is it a sense of belonging? Do, Do I belong? Am I worthy? It's a little bit of discounting yourself. Let me, I'll give one example. Um, I recently, our team, I should say, secured an invitation to the White House for um, uh, National Hispanic Heritage Month. And I had the super good fortune of being able to go, and it was an amazing thing, and got to see all of these things you see on TV, and you're like, wow, I'm standing in the White House. Like, my God, right? But then there's this other voice that's like, but you got here not because you did anything, but because you're brown, right? And so that story that tape is can be really harmful but it's also like (laughs) again the double-edged sword you got here and you're brown right like so there's it just sort of depends on which moment you find a person in but to which tape you're listening to 100 percent but to ignore that there are at least two tapes I think is detrimental and unhelpful to the person who comes up behind me right because the best possible version of my story is that there are 20 more queer Latina CEOs of tech companies, you know, growing in underestimated places that raise a kajillion dollars, and we forget my name altogether, that would be amazing. That is the success story. So I really feel it is, the onus is on me that we talk about these things and we start to put some of these awkward issues out front because the same things that make us important and special are also the things, they're the demons on our shoulders when nobody's around. Someone in your position, CEO's executive level, who say, you know, I struggle with this, I'm working on this. I question things. They, it makes you human. Mm. Like, let's say the Brene Browns. Successful people, but, you know, she's human to us. She's like one of us. Why? Because she talks about mistakes. Yeah, definitely. Challenges, things like that. Yeah. Um, so in that vein, if there are other areas that um, lessons learned, mistakes made as you were building the company, maybe when it comes to employees that you're like, we didn't do this right in the beginning, but we are doing it now and we're really successful. So many of those. Share, share a few of those. <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. Yeah. Well, I, so I appreciate that angle because it is a, a really human experience, the whole thing. There's no amount of money we can raise. There's no magazine cover we can be on that takes away the fact that we're just human beings trying to figure out a hard thing. And I think one of the things when you have a a profile where you do end up in, you know, a major newspaper or in a magazine that people miss 
is that this is my first time doing this at this scale, at this size. And I, every single day, don't know what I'm doing, right? And, but that, there's, you do have to have something of a, a level of delusion that you can figure it out. Um, and so that carrying just, just enough delusion around with you yes. gets you through everything you don't know, but you have to know that you don't know. So we should all have like 5% of delusion to carry us through. You got to believe in things that other people don't believe in on day one. What were some of the biggest lessons learned in, you know, managing a company? You were once an employee being managed in your past, and now it's not only are you the manager, you're the CEO. And co-CEO and CEO set the tone. We look to leaders for examples as role, role models, et cetera. Was there anything from your experience as an employee that you thought that has influenced how you run the company? And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that leader because I know what it's like to be in their position. And so this I'm going to lead. Oh, gosh, yes. I think it, it comes down to money if we're being like the the we could talk about respect and trust and those types of things. But as an employee, I want to make a bunch of money right at my job. And somehow, I want a big paycheck. Right. You, and I want to feel valuable. Right. Which often is demonstrated by what I take home. Right. Um, Fair pay, fair promotion. Yes, all of all of the things that sort of are recognizable, and one of the things that changes is that once you own a business, it's almost like you stop remembering what it was like to be an employee, where you want to make a bunch of money, right? Where you want to have, where you want to be recognized for your work, and that's something that is really important to us when we're looking across the company and saying, it's not about, it's not even about deserving. It's not about those things. It's that if I were in that position. I would want to be recognized in this way. And that it really is uh, diametrically opposed to a lot of how businesses currently run, which is how little can I pay a person? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Or can I get away with not making that adjustment until they start to complain or whatever the thing is. But or I would say even at hiring. Yes. You know, how much will that person need to come aboard versus what? Is this role deserving of? Yes. No matter whom it is coming in, yes. if they have experience or not experience, it almost starts there. One of the things that makes me the most crazy is when I hear people say, well, so-and-so probably needs a bump because they have a family. It's like, I get that they have a family, but are we penalizing now people that don't have families? That's messed up. We should not make our decisions this way. So there's got to be a different way to make these decisions that has to do with value, that has to do with putting ourselves in those shoes where it's not about what a person is necessarily carrying at home. It's about what the company is saying to you with what we pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we believe that we should push the edges of that because that's how we would want to be treated in those positions. Mm-hmm. Which is, you're describing an equitable workplace. That's right. No matter what you have going on at home, your age, your That's right. what you look like. That's right. Equal opportunity. Do you feel, of course you're going to answer yes to this question, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you feel proud of the company you built? In what ways do you feel pride? My favorite thing about what I get to do every day is that I get to pay people. That is the my favorite piece. I, I don't like suffering. I don't like economic terror. I think that we 
contribute to the alleviation of those fears by putting cash in people's pockets. It's that simple. And so my favorite thing about being CEO is that I get to pay people every two weeks and it, it will always be my greatest accomplishment, even if it stopped tomorrow, right? I have years behind me of having been able to do that and I feel really good about the place that we built that does that. It also scares me a little bit <laughs> because I, I, my, I would really like landing the job at our company not to be the best thing someone's ever done, but that they leverage that to do whatever's next because that's how you, that's how you perpetuate the ethos, the movement, the philosophy. And that's ultimately what I want is to see people use what we are doing as a springboard to the next good thing we can do for our friends and neighbors. That's very admirable. <laughs> I don't think many CEOs would say, I want to build them and grow them, and then I want to see them fly the coop. I just, that's the success story. Somebody has to come next. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Better. You can stream this and previous episodes wherever podcasts are available. 